Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment, visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, today's episode. Let's dive in. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host. I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Those who have been following the Business Creators Radio Show and are familiar with the work that I do through the Business Creators Institute know that I can't get enough of influence and persuasion and the power of words. In fact, one of the six pillars of the spring formula, which is the foundation of my book, Groundhog Day is an Event, Not a Business Strategy, is all about how subtly changing words can create big differences in our communications, our messaging, and the results we get from those activities. Anytime I have the opportunity to share with you somebody who has some additional insights in this area, some things that we can both learn together, both you know, me and you, the listener, I'm always excited to do that. So today we're going to discuss selling with authentic persuasion, and to guide us through that, we have with us a gentleman named Jason Cutter. Jason is the CEO of Cutter Consulting Group and founder of the Authentic Persuasion Methodology. Jason is a sales success architect. He works with sales managers and sales reps, helping them craft, own, and refine their sales infrastructure. Everything from training to scripting to CRM systems, Jason's goal is to take people from order taker to quota breaker. I'm liking it. Now, actually, you know what? Scratch it. I, I don't like it at all. I love it. Jason Cutter, come on in. The weather's fine. Adam, thanks for having me. I'm so excited, especially after that intro, man. That was amazing. You know, just reading about you, I'm not even sure I'm qualified to be in this conversation, and it's my show, so ah. <laughs> so I think that's mutual. All right, before we dive in, and I know that we are going to have a lot of fun batting some ideas back and forth here and showing our listeners a new point of view, which is the most exciting part of this, let's take a step back and get to know Jason the man. Tell us a little bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. And I know that, you know, in our dialogue before we began this interview, you shared with me some bullet points about your life and thought to mention that, oh, this seems to make no sense on paper, but yet here I am. And when I read them, I thought it did make a lot of sense. So tell us a little bit about that. It's actually pretty interesting. Yeah, thanks, Adam. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, you know, I help teams, I help individuals, help companies with their sales success, um, which is where I'm at now and a funny kind of timeline from where I started, let's say in life. Uh, I grew up as a shy, awkward, only child, late bloomer to two analytical parents who were not a fan of salespeople, to put it nicely. Yeah. So I didn't grow up in a selling household. Uh, you know, we weren't business, uh, business family. We weren't selling anything. I was very anti-sales. Um, which then, you know, the next stage of my life, which was college, I went to school and got my bachelor's degree in marine biology uh, from UC Santa Cruz, where I tagged sharks for a few years. 
still not sure what I want to do with life. Ended up moving to Seattle, worked at Microsoft for several years doing tech support back when that was still something that was done in the United States before it got offshored and, and outsourced. And it wasn't until I was 27 when I got my first sales job, but I'll use air quotes on that because it was in the mortgage business in 2002, which you didn't have to use any skills to be successful in helping <laughs> people then. Yeah, because it was just crazy, right? People were just begging you to you know, help them get into the largest debt of their life. Um, and so it didn't take anything. Yet at the same time, I still failed a bunch and learned a lot of lessons because there wasn't training. It was classic, right? You know, Somebody who accidentally falls into sales, doesn't have any training, and is sink or swim. And that's what happens to a lot of salespeople or people who are in sales roles. Um, you know, and some make it, most don't. And uh, so that kind of triggered me and started off a career in sales and selling through various companies, uh, leading companies, mostly telephone sales teams in multiple offices, sometimes working with offices in other countries, and then, you know, going out and uh, doing my own thing as a consultant. That's great. When I went to college, my major was in political science. And what's funny about that is that was supposed to be a precursor to me going to law school. And then as a result of attending a seminar during my first senior year of college, I decided that there was about zero and a half chance percent of that ever happening. I realized it was a great profession, but I wasn't really so much cut out for it. At least I didn't think so at the time. What I did not have even an understanding existed with some of the stuff we're going to cover today, which is the use of influence and persuasion. I don't know about everybody's view on this, and I know we have some attorneys who tune in regularly, and I have friends who are attorneys. It's been my belief that the most important thing that you can have in a trial setting is the ability to influence and persuade you have a murder case. Your defendant was caught red-handed with a bloody knife. You're, theoretically, your defendant could actually be holding the bloody knife right there in the courtroom, but if you went over the jury, you can persuade them that he, that, uh, he was acting in desperate self-defense and should be let go. Same if it's a bench trial. Really, there's one thing you need to do is persuade the judge. We've seen many times, in fact, I write about this in my book, that there's no such thing as the truth. We each have our own individual truths based upon our own education experiences and backgrounds where we look at facts and be empirically, scientifically, and otherwise proven and apply them to how we view the world. That's why when some I hear somebody use the phrase, the truth, I think, oh, here comes the suppression round. Not liking this at all. Uh, controversial statement perhaps, but it's what I've kind of held to and it's worked well for me. So I think that anyway, when it comes to sales and when you are an entrepreneur, you're in sales, that in order to sell more, it's valuable to appeal to somebody's own truth. But in general, Jason, why do you find in your experience that most people fail at winning in sales? It's two sides, right? And this goes into kind of what you were setting up and the truth and, and whatnot is uh, on one side, people fail to be successful in sales long-term because they follow the classic as seen on TV, boiler room, Wolf of Wall Street 
type of model where it's about tactics and tricks and manipulation. And that kind of stuff only lasts a little bit of time, right? So you can fool some of the people some of the time, as they say, but you can't win long term. Um, and that's not a great strategy to be successful. What happens is those type of salespeople end up changing careers, changing industries, changing states, sometimes changing countries um, in order to find you know, a new market. And then on the flip side or on the other end of that spectrum, people fail at sales because they're afraid of being that type of salesperson, right? They had bad experience as a kid or as a consumer uh, in their adult life where they got taken advantage of or they saw people who got manipulated and bought stuff that they didn't want or like or that didn't work. And so they don't want to do that to other people, right? The golden rule, treat others like you want to be treated. And uh -huh. so what happens is they go to the other extreme of let's say the manipulation end of the spectrum where, and this is the label you mentioned earlier, order taker, where they're essentially giving some information and hoping people buy without having any professional stake in the process and without guiding them through it. And that's what happens. They sit back and wait. And there's only so many easy lay down sales where people are walking up to you or calling you with a pile of money in their hand, begging you to take it from them. Yeah. And you know, when I was in college, as I said, I didn't even know that there was a study of influence and persuasion and how we use our language. Yeah, I took English classes. I took creative writing. I took a speech communications class. This stuff was at most maybe mentioned in passing in such a way, blink if you miss it. When I discovered the world of influence and persuasion years later, I was amazed at what's here for us. But I will tell you one thing that I did get exposure to during my college years that a lot of people to this day haven't heard of. It's called the Platinum Rule, created by to Dr. Tony Alessandra. I discovered early on the power of the Platinum Rule, which is not do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. It's do unto others as they would have done unto them which requires you to understand personality types and understand how people process data and apply it in their interactions with others to determine how does this person, how is this person most likely wanting to have it done unto them or done for them themselves? And by tapping into your audience's narrative in that fashion, it makes you more effective as an influencer. That was one of the gifts of just some of the friendships that I made during that time I got to be introduced to, to that whole concept and from there I actually spun the idea there's no such thing as the truth well and I think that's great I mean that's where a most I'm going to say most people fail in relationships and in life, um, let alone failing, failing in sales. I mean, most people, again, follow that golden rule. And I've written about this before where I think the golden rule is wrong. I mean, I hadn't heard that platinum rule kind of framework until recently, but it was something that I did. Don't sell to people or you treat people how you like to be treated when it comes to some kind of relationship interaction, right? Respect, right. courtesy, you know, uh, uh, fairness, those kind of things. Yes. Right. So that's just standard um, etiquette. But when it comes to something else, that's why, you know, and it's an awkward, you know, suggestion that I have for people to read, especially for leaders, managers, and business owners. Um, it's the five love languages. It's about understanding how other people 
take in love and what it means to them. And so if you, let's say you're a big person on giving gifts, if you give your team gifts all the time, because they're doing a great job, um, some of the people won't like it and they won't think you care about them because you're not speaking the same language. Same thing happens in sales. I mean, if you like, you know, because I'm an analytical guy, this is what I screwed up a lot in my beginning sales career is I treated everyone else like I wanted to be treated as a customer. And so I like spreadsheets and data and metrics and facts and a lot of time on my own and no pressure. And so I would do that to people. I'd give them a spreadsheet with 10 different options of what they should do for their mortgages. And uh, lo and behold, no one would ever buy because a confused mind just says no. And uh, I triggered analysis paralysis and everyone ran away the other way silently. Um, and then I realized like that doesn't work. You've got to give them what they want to help make their decision, which side note, uh, if you're dealing with an analytical person, also don't give them spreadsheets because they will go into analysis paralysis. So you have to be careful not to give them necessarily what they want, but give them what it will take for them to get what they say they want in life. I, Two things came to mind when you were telling that story. Uh, when it comes to looking at what people respond to and how to reach them, it's funny you mentioned love languages. Last month, I was at my favorite cigar shop, and they were running a promotion. They had one of the brands come in and were selling boxes of cigars. And so I participated. I bought a box because I needed a box for home. The salesperson kept trying to lay all kinds of extra polo shirts on me i don't wear polo shirts <laughs> they it. were trying to give me all kinds of cheap lighters i have expensive lighters uh trying to give me keychains and stickers and cup warmers which i don't use it's like dude i you're not doing any favors with this stuff if you want to give me a little extra give me a few extra cigars i don't need the swag in fact give my exactly. swag to somebody else if you're mandated to get rid of it uh, it's, it's not going to go anywhere with me and he kept pushing those shirts and those and those keychains i don't even want it much less yeah. need it and here's something that we see a lot and i'm going to say this very candidly uh you know there are some folks that get annoyed by their relatives and this is a common thing that happens with when you become an entrepreneur you go on social media and you're posting about your business you're posting about the brilliant insights you want to share with your fans and followers that will inspire them and then uh, and then aunt polly comes in and says oh oh jason i love you so much you're so cute you still look like your dad have you been like reading my these? social media feed? Yeah, we all have it. Let me get to the point. <laughs> Aunt Polly's a lovely woman. I assure you that. And I don't actually have an Aunt Polly. I'm making this up. But uh, this is something that a lot of folks deal with. Let me get to the point when you mentioned the love languages. Uh, you know, in some families, uh, you know, they say, oh, I love you. And you're supposed to say, I love you too. And somebody says, oh, I love you so much. I say, okay. Because the idea of having to say it back irritates me. In fact, I don't even want somebody else to say it. I want them to show me, not use a bunch of words. The words irritate me. And, and my grandfather, God rest his soul, was the exact same way. Uh, he'd have certain members of the family fawn and say, oh, dad, I love you so much. Oh, Uncle Bob, I love you so much. And he'd say, thanks. Because it wasn't his way to engage in those types of displays. He had other ways of showing love, and he was one of the most generous, gentle, loving individuals you'd ever meet. He just uh, did not feel comfortable exchanging the words. And if you understand the love languages, you understand why that is, which is why I'm saying, yeah, Jason, it's a good idea people read that book. Yeah, and, and for you know, business owners, business leaders, 
managers of teams. I mean, I've used it forever in leading sales reps because, you know, cash to one person isn't as much as, you know, uh, taking that top sales rep out to lunch would mean way more than a new TV because of what they see as appreciation. Um, right. And depending on your sales cycle, depending on how long you're involved with either making a sale right now, or I deal with a lot of people who are coaches and other consultants. And so the sale is literally step one in a long marriage. Um, and so then like understanding this and getting to know the other person, that platinum rule you're talking about, those kind of things help you be more successful long-term if your intentions are good and you actually care long-term. That's the key. Precisely. Do you think that some of the reason that people fail to win at sales is because at some point in their life, they get a sales job and it doesn't go very well? A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. you know, most, <laughs> most people have bad experiences as a customer where either themselves or somebody they know bought something they didn't want or like or didn't need. Um, and then they get into sales, you know, most people and, and there's a guy, Scott Lees, he wrote a book. He has a great line starting out his book. He says, sales is the garbage can of life, um, which I'm jealous that I didn't come up with that first, but it's true. It's where most people go. You know, most people don't grow up you know, some people are playing doctor, some people are playing lawyer like you did, and then other ones are playing salesperson, yeah. right? Like that's not what most people do, um, yet they end up in it. They don't get training. They don't get the proper help uh, and they're left on their own. Yeah, I worked in a sales role for eight months and 16 days and it was so awful that it's the focus of my chapter in Journeys to Success Millennial Edition. And I celebrate the day that I left that job. It was my second birthday, April 27th. Uh, just had to add my 20th second birthday here not too long ago. Part of the problems with those environments were sales tactics that to me were inauthentic and generally were actually kind of cruel. Uh, like for example, I you know, it was uh, it was basically being a recruiter for a temporary staffing agency. I would have a, I would be checking a reference on one of our applicants. Now, when you're checking references, you're also supposed to be doing that stuff of finding out. Hey, by the way, you're the hiring manager. You need any temps and that sort of thing. And so naturally, sometimes you find somebody who wants to to speak with you and they actually start telling you about their company and they and, you know they may they have a sense of accomplishment they want to share that with somebody and a lot of us know that when you're in a selling situation when it's about relationships if somebody really feels like talking there's a time and a place to just let them because they will hand you information that you need that will help you create a wonderful <laughs> experience with them when you sell to them so exactly. meanwhile i have my manager, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go on any rants. I'm in a good mood today, but I have ranted about her before on the business creators radio show about how incompetent and stupid she was as a human being. So find another episode where I do that. But anyway, uh, she would hover over me while I was on the telephone and say in her out loud voice, um, unless unless they're saying yes they want temps, hang up on them right now. Yeah. Wow, I, I, I'm familiar I with that. Yeah, uh, do I do I need to give more examples, or do you have an idea of how distorted that model was, and how I came out of that feeling myself very unhappy with the idea of selling, and feeling like I basically got gut punched when I tried to do a selling role, wondering 
well, why are a couple people at this company doing so well with it and most of the other people failing? And at eight months and 16 days, the company turned over over 75%. Based on the real example I just gave you, I think you can understand where some of that turnover came from. But I was in, of the mind frame and program that sales is just tough and most people can't do it. But well, the more I go through life, I discover it's actually not the case. Exactly. And I think a lot of people have that experience. And there's so many things that, uh, you know, happened in your experience in those uh, eight months and 16 days. Yeah. Um, not that you're not that you kept track, but you know, it's it's somewhere around there. No, um, no. You know, I, I think <laughs> one, of, you know, one of the big things, and this is what I tell a lot of people is that kind of organization works, that kind of organization is always around. I mean, the kind of because most likely that manager was a sales rep who was really good at it and got promoted. They didn't come in as a manager. They were just, that's, they exact, that's to be, exactly what it was. She, it, it's, uh, she was a sales rep with another company and she came back to work at daddy's firm as a manager. Uh, but uh, being a good salesperson, I mean, she may have been a good salesperson, but as far as managerial skills, if you could actually, you know, measure managerial skills on a minus 5,000 scale should be lower than that. Well, and, and so what I tell people all the time, because I, you know, answer a lot of questions and chat with a lot of sales reps and they have experiences like that. And I tell them like, that isn't a very successful long-term sales strategy. You can look at the turnover, just understand that. And yeah. it's really not, if it doesn't feel right, the, the issue isn't selling or the sales role or even a career in sales. That wasn't the uh, problem with your situation, Adam. It was the corporate culture and what was yeah. acceptable versus not acceptable there. And again, now that you've learned it, you know, throughout life and looking yeah. back and you can see if you had gone somewhere else that was more supportive and fit with something that was in alignment for you and what you wanted to sell or how you wanted to, you know, have relationships and conversations with people. Um, you know, if you had found that place, it could have been totally different instead of, of a course. bad taste in your mouth and sales. Right. Yeah. And that's why I'm bringing it up because I think a lot of people go through that and they're left with the perception that yeah, sales is just a boiler room of a, of a business and it's really tough and most people don't succeed in it. So on the one hand, uh, I understand why I failed at sales and I'm not even going to try again. I'm not going to try to learn more about it because I saw it. It's hard. Now, as far as that one hiring manager I was speaking with, I say to this day, I was probably about three minutes from writing five orders. Wow. Because by somebody who wasn't even really aware of what was going on, sticking their nose in just so they could show off that they were a manager, uh, probably cost that company five potential temp placements. And that yeah, it, worked on me for the last three months that I worked there. I kept thinking about that every day because those five slots, I remembered I, I mean, I had people in my, uh, a whole file cabinet full of people who were ready to be temp workers who I could have had at that, that company eight o'clock the next morning. And uh, so, you know what that means? That means that was money out of my pocket. Well, and, and a lot of that's where, you know, a lot of people either get stuck and they stay in a company too long yeah. because they don't want it. You know, it's, it's a semi golden handcuffs, right? Cause you have yeah. deals, you have sales, you have commissions pending, you have something going on. And if you leave your SOL and uh, you know, it's going to cost you versus leaving and getting your sanity and not looking back and taking what you learned and going somewhere else and doing it in a way that feels right for you. Yeah, see, what we didn't have back in that time, and as I said, that was over 20 years ago, was social media wasn't 
really a thing. What I, when I look back at that situation, I look back what I would have done differently because part of the reason I rant and rave and I say shocking things on the business creators radio show is because we've done studies and our listeners have heard me say this of our most avid listeners and the behaviors they engage in while streaming our episodes. And we find that most of them stream it in the background while doing something else. So if you and I were just talking back and forth, I was asking you a question, you were answering it, it's going to start to sound like the teacher on peanuts. But if I every so often say something that makes me say, whoa, did he really just say that? Now they're leaning in again. So that is based on studies of human behavior when it comes to attention spans as which are going downward due to the instantaneous availability of information and how we're pushed to multitask even though we shouldn't so there's really a scientific reason why i do that plus you know it's fun it's my show i can do it uh but there you go let's get back to the point and i like to interject these things also to keep our listeners aware that you blink and you miss it if you if i go back and look rationally what I would have done differently aside from the fact that what I learned from the interview process for that job I should have just walked away from it but had <laughs> I gone through that anyway and I'd still shown up a few things I would have done is if we had social media back then as I encountered hiring managers that would have been that I would have been building a LinkedIn network around that right. uh, in those in those days um, you know the, the thing was well, you know, your Rolodex, and they had this real big thing about how you couldn't be building a Rolodex or developing your own personal contacts. They were afraid you're going to take it to the competition. They were, they lived in paranoid fear of their competition. It was just amazing. Uh, but what I didn't have the mindset was, well, I'm not taking a Rolodex. I'm making connections. So I happen, I happen to know the, uh, the, the HR director in such and such a company. If I go work for another company, I can call them up. I'm not stealing anybody's Rolodex because I'm not taking data from one company from moving it to another. I have a personal connection with this problem, and I'm just picking up the phone and checking in and say, hey, by the way, uh, here's what I'm up to now. It's a reframing. Yeah, and what's interesting is that the companies who are afraid of that, right, afraid of their reps taking all their good leads or their customers, yeah. usually what happens is they're coming from this, like, toxic scarcity type mindset that's what was going then, on which then actually perpetuates the cycle because then it makes people angry and upset and they leave and more likely to actually do that because yeah you know they feel like they were mistreated or just wasn't a good fit um uh -huh. so it actually makes it worse i mean you know the biggest thing because i've worked in organizations or, or consulted with organizations that have that reflex which is let's control the, the the network and the crm and the data and don't let anybody you know have a way that they could yeah. find you know these leads somewhere else it's like there's seven billion people on the planet like if somebody wants to do bad stuff they will otherwise trust that people with you know the right intentions are on the team yeah. and um you know there's there's always ways to find more clients because here, here's what I know looking back 20 years ago is, uh, all right, so I make a connection with an HR director because I'm doing a reference check. Well, I send them a LinkedIn connection request and add them to my Christmas list. That's not stealing. What am I supposed to do? Not know the person after I know them? Come on. 
and and for and for business owners yeah. who might be listening to this and thinking, well, how do I prevent that with your sales team? You don't. The best yeah. thing you can do is create a great culture people want to be a part of, and understand that people won't be with you for. 30 years so they can get the gold watch and the pension, uh-huh. right? That's just not a thing. And so you just got to understand that, you know, sometimes people are going to do that and you might lose some contacts down the road, but if you overall do the right thing for your employees and your customers, it will always work out. Right, right. You, you Basically what you do is you focus on loyalty and relationships. Yeah. And, and so you're, and so your salesperson quits and goes to work for your competition. They call up your contact. Your contact says, Hey, I'm happy where I'm at. Give me a call in a year. So when you have yeah. the right relationship with that contact, they'll they'll protect your database for you. Yep. I mean, if you're doing a good job, and and my guess is that you're that company from a long time ago, their customers probably had similar reactions to them, whatever their service or product was. Oh, with the recruiting, um, yeah. you know it. it it, they probably weren't loyal to that company either because of how it, it felt and probably how it went, um, which means you're going to easily, they would easily lose any contacts, any candidates, they, any they have, clients. They had some loyal customers, but yeah. uh, to your point, now that I think of it anecdotally, there were a lot of one-time deals. Whereas what I discovered as an entrepreneur, particularly in any type of service business you can build one hell of a business off a handful of really good accounts. You don't want to put too many eggs in one basket, but just like if you're a sales trainer, for example, uh, I know a lot of sales trainers that make, that make mint off three good clients and then everything else that cycles in and out is gravy, but they have their three sharks, so to speak. And that leads to my next question. Uh, You mentioned something called tagging sharks that we actually want to move away from. So I'd like to get into that with you. So how does someone being a salesperson or you go from tagging sharks, and if you could define that term for us, to being a sales success consultant, and then also define that term? So tagging sharks, literally, not not, uh, figuratively dealing with salespeople, but literally tagging sharks in the ocean or in estuaries. Um, you know, in, in Santa Cruz, tagging everything from two foot, three foot, smooth hound sharks and leopard sharks, you know, small sharks, even though some people would freak out at that, to 18 foot great white sharks, um, you know, right, right close to shore as well. Of course. Right. So, so uh, Yeah. So I did that. um, Did that for years. I mean, the downside is kind of like your journey similar with the law thing, except I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I, the doors didn't open. I mean, I graduated from a good school with a lot of experience and the best I could find in the area was a job for $8 an hour scrubbing boats with fish and game. Um, And I couldn't get that job. They gave it to a master's student. You basically needed to be in grad school to qualify to get a job for scrubbing boats because everyone wants to work at SeaWorld. Everyone wants to do marine biology. And so it was highly competitive. And so uh-huh. life took me this journey and this path. Like I said, I went to Microsoft. I tried other careers and then ended up in sales and even left sales for a while. Went back into sales as many times as I've tried to leave it, gone back into leadership. Um, and then really in that experience in, in the various sales leadership roles that I did, found that what I enjoyed the most was building new teams, helping companies start their sales team, and then also fixing what was broken in sales teams in any industry, in any sales style, in any sales process, doesn't matter to me, but just that fix, that, that developing or fixing 
is just where I enjoy it the most. And so as a consultant, that's what I get to do. I get to help sales teams be successful in some way at a higher level, depending on what it is they need. Anything from scripts to analyzing phone calls, to training, to coaching, leadership, recruiting, um, you know, to technology, you know, the sales tech stack to uh, lead generation and marketing optimization. So anything in there that would help the team win and be more successful and achieve their goals at a higher level is essentially where I'm the architect of anything in there that would help. Yeah. And that is, as I see it, a mind frame shift and a view shift of how you're positioning yourself in the deal. And that's interesting that you had to be a master's, have a master's degree to scrub boats, basically. And it makes sense yeah. when you describe it, because a lot of folks who wanted to work in the marine industry, that's kind of where they sourced from. So, I mean, I've, yeah. I mean, and I've seen, there's one example of this, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a, it was some kind of restaurant or something like that, that when they hired, when they hired you, uh, you know, hired you as a manager, they actually hired you for a first year and you worked as a server or you worked in the kitchen. You got your manager's pay, but for the first year you did shift work and you were a grunt. The reason being is they wanted managers who actually knew what the hell was going on in that restaurant and would be effective in driving the profit margins. Whereas I know myself, I worked in fast food and I did everything. I did the line. I did the pickup window. <laughs> I did, I did opens. I, 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 I knew how to open all four positions. I knew how to close all four positions. Uh, and we had developed our own system. We did it very efficiently. We never ran late. In fact, sometimes we even saved some time on it. We cut labor on it. It was brilliant. It was beautiful. And then we read the regulations, procedures, and charts about how we were supposed to do our job, and it was impossible not to laugh because, for example, it would say that if, you're, if you worked opens, uh, you'd come in at 6 o'clock in the morning, and they had this idea that all of the openers would have had their lunch break and be ready on the service line by 10.30 when the store opened. Whereas in reality, they have people come in at 10.30 and all the openers take their break at 10.30 so they can be ready for the lunch rush. They had some really crazy ideas about how opening actually worked. And then they also forgot the part that that opener might be working all the way through dinner. So what, you're going to give them their break at 10.30? I don't think so. Yeah, and that's, that, that's that, what that happens. Open, yeah, that opener's going to want to break at 1.30 right after the, the lunch rush is how it usually worked. Right. If, if, if they get a chance to get a break at all. And, and I think that's one of the challenges where yeah. depending on who's making the rules or writing that playbook or the, the, the requirements doesn't understand it because they've never been in that role. They're just looking at the chart or the calendar and going, okay, well, they got to take a break halfway between their shift. So they start at six, take it at 10 and, you know, take their union required 15 minute breaks and so uh -huh. on. Yeah, yeah. The point I was making with that is the reason we couldn't stop laughing at these protocols is because it was obvious that they were written yeah. by people who had never been in one of the restaurants except to come through the drive-thru and buy food. There's yep. no way they could have written that stuff 
after having actually come into the store and even place an order at the counter because of how far off they were from the actual reality, which is why this one company, and I wish I could remember the name, had that policy. If they hired you as a manager, you got your manager's pay, but the first year you were a grunt because they wanted people who knew how it really worked and would come, to the, and would come into their management role with innovations and ideas on how to make it better. And, and I know there is management, there's a management mindset and framework out there, which is once you're a good manager, you can just manage and lead and project manage and, and be an executive. And you don't actually have to know what people are doing underneath you because you're just a leader and you can just lead groups. Um, and I think some of that, depending on the size of the organization, if it's really big and there's lots of layers of org chart, then yes, I think that is uh, mostly effective. For me, I'm the same way. I mean, I agree with you. Uh, there's, there was a certain point where I got to being a executive in sales organizations yeah. and then moved to other organizations where I was hired as an executive or a director of sales or something like that. Uh, and literally the mandate was, okay, congratulations. And uh, we don't, you know, this one time it was congratulations. We don't really have a script. We don't have a process. Our team doesn't know what they're doing. We should probably fire some of them right now. Um, here's a cubicle. We want you to sell five deals. And then once you do that, write a script and then figure out how to do it. And then you can start hiring people and training them the way you want to do. So literally yeah. after a day of training, I'm on the phone closing deals. And, um, you know, that I, and then I could say I did it and I could tell the others how to do it from my own experience, not just a theoretical on high, uh, kind of place, but in a like, okay, so I literally know what it's like. And I do that a lot, even with my consulting clients where it's like, okay, you know, what's the process? All right, let's just do it. I mean, I go to, you know, at least when you could go to trade shows with my clients and stand in the booth and show the reps how to sell from the booth right next to them, um, you know, because it's, there's a certain way to do it. Certainly. And Sometimes you see companies, and I think, I, I'm, I believe I'm actually remembering this one correctly, Zappos, for example, based right here in Las Vegas. And one of the things that they implemented was to have their order takers, or, or their, you know, their, their, their order takers, the people who take orders uh, for shoes and such uh, over the phone and over the internet, sit right next to the purchasing people so that they could clearly communicate the features and benefits of the merchandise. I love it. Yeah. So it's a matter of, it's a matter of having departments work together instead of at war with each other. I think which is one of many things that are missed. And this has uh, oh, yeah. been a fun conversation about the impact of management on sales ability. And we've gotten into some strategies to use and some metaphors and things along those lines. So what, do you have any really good stories for us of how you've used some of this authentic persuasion stuff and really done some legendary things? We love to tell stories here at the Business Creators Radio Show. Well, you know, the point at which I realized how effective I had become in sales was when I used to help people in foreclosure. So there was people who had gotten mortgages, hit hardships financially, you know, for one reason or another, and were on the path to losing their home um, 
immediately. And in fact, I was in Washington state at the time, everything was filed and it was public and all auctions were on Fridays at 10 AM. Sometimes people were calling us on Monday and saying, Hey, my house is going to foreclosure on Friday, which is like somebody buys it. The sheriff comes and they're out and they'd say, okay, you know, my house is, is, is going, what should I do? And you'd think that would be an easy sale. Be like, Hey, we can help you. It's going to take this. You got to do this, but people get scared. They, they think there's always hope. They just want to put their head in the sand and they literally will do everything except take action because there's, they're just hopeful people yeah. in that lens, right? You're talking about the truth is people are always thinking that there's some kind of, you know, thing that's going to happen from above or heavens or some kind of winning lottery ticket or something that's going to bail them out of their bad decisions or bad choices or bad circumstance, whatever it might be. Um, so, and we were helping people over the phone um, versus, you know, face to face. And I, there was so many times where we would get to a point in the conversation and literally I could get somebody to finally get their head out of the sand and agree. Uh, I remember one time I talked to a guy, it was Thursday at five o'clock. His house was going to auction Friday at 10 AM. And again, you'd think this would be super easy talking to him for a few hours on the phone. He finally agreed. I got him to go to a notary, get things signed so we could get everything submitted to the bank. And by 9.30 a.m. the next day, we had his auction postponed so that he could save his house and get some stuff done. Um, and it was in that moment, plus a couple of others, where I realized like, when you do it right and you're helping somebody and you do it effectively, there's a huge difference, right? It means the difference yeah. between someone being homeless out on the street versus, you know, some kind of, you know, longer term positive impact for them. Yeah. And what you, you know, get to is the idea of helping people see the value of applying their own self-interest. And that leads to another question. We see this a lot in uh, what passes for conversation and debate on social media these days. Has anybody ever... I don't know how you stand politically or whether you say it out loud and it doesn't matter. Don't share it here. But have you ever yourself or somebody, you know, has shared your thoughts and somebody came to them and said, why are you voting against your interests? No. Okay. So you've never, you've never heard that, that challenge. I've, and, I've, and, and I've heard it, but I yeah. don't think anybody's, really like said that to me and maybe it's personally. because I just don't engage. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because, so you don't really engage, but for, nah. but for those who do, uh, that you know, all folks say, well, why are you voting against your interests? And I've had that said to me. And my first question is tell me my interests. What are my interests? Yeah. Since you seem to have this well-formed opinion about how <laughs> I'm advocating something that's somehow against my interests, tell me what they are. And most usually they'll, either back off or they'll double down but i have had a couple cases where people then start listing what my interests are and i say that's not my interest that's not yeah. my interest that doesn't benefit me that actually that that's actually detrimental to me i don't care about that that doesn't matter i don't think about that uh what about these things that keep me up at night that wake me up in the morning excited that impact my daily life the lives of those around me you didn't mention any of those because those are my interests which goes back to the point of the reason I bring that up by analogy and metaphor is understanding what people's interests are. And I think you gave a good example of that. People didn't want to be homeless and at the same time had a challenge of believing that they could take a step that would keep them homed. 
Yeah. And, and your whole, like, why are you voting, uh, you know, against your interests is similar. Like I'm hearing you talk and I'm thinking about all the LinkedIn messages that I get. Where uh-huh. People send me a message. And because I'm a business owner, consultant coach, the first thing they tell me is they can get me five to 10 more appointments a day for my business. And it's like, how do you know? Like they, we, we know we can help you. It's like, how do you know what I want? How do you know what I need? Like, why are you uh-huh. leading with assuming, you know, and of course the thing is that works, right? That a percentage of the time it's going to trigger something and then go, wait, I uh-huh. do want all of that. Um, but for most everyone else, it's like just, it's a terrible shotgun blast hoping that you're going to hit something. I still remember this. This was so many years ago and it was a friend of mine. The person's wonderful. And they left me a voicemail saying that they were involved in something that would get me thousands of people signing (laughs) up for my webinars. Okay. Here's the problem with that. There are folks out there who may be used to getting tens of hundreds of people signing up and say, hey, if I can go from 700 to 1,500, this is a conversation. But at the time, actually having somebody show up for the webinar after they registered for it was considered a victory for me. My belief system at the time didn't call for thousands. So that was, so what I, so I think what I picked up when you mentioned the LinkedIn messages is what, they're going to get me 10 more appointments a day. Well, if uh, I'm somebody who's averaging five appointments a month, I can't imagine, I can't see for myself in the moment, 10 appointments a day, which is actually and, and something it could I cover, be... yeah, which is something I cover in the Groundhog book and helping people see something as possible, even though they can't see it for themselves by being artfully vague. Right. And, and part of it is, Maybe they don't believe it's possible. They don't know. They wouldn't know what to do with it if you gave it to them. They don't think they're worth it. And then the other side is it also has to be applicable, right? Like right. for me, I usually work with select number of companies. I help them in, in, in a longer term way. I also do some coaching. I help individual sales reps and groups. But for companies in particular, usually it's, you know, some either big development or big overhaul and, and we're doing some amazing stuff but I can only work with so many companies at a time because yeah. they're, you're getting my attention and I want them to be successful. Right. I'm not just uh-huh. selling them necessarily a, a seminar package and wishing them well. Like I actually want them to succeed. So right. You're like me, me in that it, case. Yeah. So like giving me 10 more appointments a day, isn't going to do me any good because you know, it's going to tell me all the people who maybe they want help, but, you know, and then there's also the pessimistic side, right? I'm generally optimistic and I think the best, but it's like, come on, like, how are you going to get those things done? Are they valid? What, what's the catch? Usually when it's, again, this is what I train salespeople to do all the time and be careful of is that when you're too excited and it sounds too good to be true, it's going to trigger a ton of alarm bells in people's heads. Like yeah. the primal part of their brain is going to freak out and, and, and want to know what's the catch, what's the scam, what's in it for you? Like, why are uh-huh. you so excited about selling me crap? Like, why? And what, what's this really going to cost me? And, and when you're doing it wrong, you're going to trigger people to have those thoughts. Precisely. Again, as I mentioned in my book, it's the idea they can't see it for themselves. So as a bridge, you have to help them see it for somebody, maybe themselves, maybe somebody else, maybe just the idea is theoretically possible because I can convince somebody that there are people out there who have 10 appointments a day. I know people who get 10 appointments a day, but for the person who's averaging five appointments a month, 
that is just so far out of their scope. Now, if you told them, I can get you from five appointments a month uh, to 20 appointments a month, that could be believable because now we're moving from on average one and a quarter appointments a week to one appointment a day. I could see that. But I can't see jumping to 10 appointments a day because now I'm going to ask myself, where am I going to find time in my day for 10 appointments? <laughs> I can't vision myself making that dramatic a change in my day plan. And I don't care how fast that grows my business. It's going to throw everything into a tailspin because we just ain't equipped. Yeah. So you, so you look at where they really are and you get a sense and a situational awareness of how they're viewing things. And you may say, okay, well, even though I know I could be getting them 10 appointments a day, they're not there yet. So how about if I speak with them about 50% more appointments? Well, if I'm getting one appointment a week, two appointments a week is 100% improvement. I'll, I'll, I'll take double what you're offering me, sure. Yeah. And, and that's where most salespeople, in my experience, also go wrong is they assume everyone's going to want what they have without asking questions or uncovering it and instead identifying what that person wants, right? Instead of asking yeah. you, hey, Adam, hey, I, got, I can get you 10 more appointments. Like, well, you know, tell me about a challenge with your business. What are you looking for? And yeah. keeping in mind that as a sales professional, um, your goal isn't to sell everybody on whatever it is that you have available. Not everyone Correct. is a good fit. There's yeah. a good fit and then there's a not good fit. And you've got to tell those people who aren't a good fit, no, send them on their way in something that will help them and not try to, you know, put square pegs in round holes just because you're desperate. Yeah, there, there, there is, there is that, and I do believe that you know we do have situations where people are trying to fit the square peg into the round hole because they're in a sales environment that where their success is measured by by how they bring in X number of sales or X number of revenue, or in the case where I worked, your value as a salesperson was measured by their little computer program that kept track of how many hours of outgoing phone calls you had a day. What that meant is let's say one day I left 50 messages and all I was getting was voicemail, 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 voicemail. But then the next day I come in and man, I'm getting callbacks left and right. Uh, I'm having a receptionist line them up for me because I got two people on hold backed up. I'm telling people to call me back in an hour and everything else. And I'm on the phone all damn day. And they say, you didn't have any outgoing phone time today. What the hell were you doing? Meanwhile, I was on the phone so much, I barely got lunch. Right? And, and that's where the wrong, the wrong metrics, the wrong incentivization, the wrong kind of idea of what it takes to be successful. And in my experience, if it's just a numbers game, if it's just about phone calls, like that kind of metric tracking in a company that only cares about that, is going to have the kind of turnover and culture that you experienced. Yeah. Right? And, I, and I, results. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I think it also started at, at the wrong place. Uh, the fact that they, and I asked about this and they said, well, yeah, well, first we're looking at how much outgoing phone time you have. Then we're going to look at who are you speaking to? What are you saying? How are the conversations going? What are these conversations resulting in? How fast is that happening? But looking back with 20 years of experience, and a lot of time passed, I'm realizing that 
really, I can't think of a single person who ever got beyond being hounded about the amount of outgoing phone time they had. And what that tells me is that they were beginning with the incorrect initial measurements. Yep. There's probably, there's probably a step before, maybe two, three steps before outgoing phone time. Just off the top of my head, we could start with total phone time. So, all right, you, uh, you, were, you were here eight hours today and you spent an hour and a half on the phone. Okay, we have a problem. Uh, right. Don't think you're generating a whole lot here. So now we got to work on strategies to get more people to call you back. We got to work on making sure you're calling the people where your time is going to be best spent. We got to maybe work on getting you a script so that you get through you get through the voicemail barrier and people want to call you back. Maybe we want to give you some training on how to effectively manage gatekeepers. Those are four areas we could go right there. But never really seem to get to that. Nope. And, and it really just comes down to what are the metrics that actually matter, yeah. right? Like now, I've, I've, I've yeah. worked in organizations where the sales process, if it's successful and fast is 45 minutes, it's, if it's successful and slow, it could be two hours of, of one phone call, but it's done, right? It's like a, a one call sales process, but it's done. I've seen We've all been have, through those. Yeah. And, but I've had salespeople who have an amazing record breaking record breaking day for number of sales in one day. And they had four phone calls or six phone calls all day. I can imagine they got the initial yeah. person. They, they captured the interest that maybe they already reached a decision maker. And that person was willing to see it through, or maybe they reached the gatekeeper decision maker who was so impressed. They got the decision maker and the decision maker was available. And that's it. There are a lot of there are a lot of different star patterns that need to line up for this stuff to happen. But if you go just based on number of calls, which I see a lot, of, I mean, I'm in I'm in California near Silicon Valley. What's, yeah. what's touted a lot in this area, plus others, is making just hundreds of hundreds of outbound calls a day, and it's about how quickly can you get to a million cold calls because it's all just a numbers game. Okay, right. the, and you know what? That's a starting point because if somebody's brand new and you just want to get them in the process of making calls, that's not necessarily a bad place to start. Is just get them comfortable with picking up the phone and speaking with people or leaving messages. So now, so now once you can get them to 50, 75, 100 calls a day, cool. Now let's look at what you're saying. Let's look exactly. at your tactics for uh, getting voicemails returned, getting through gatekeepers, et cetera. And let, and, that, and now let's look at uh, let's look in your log of you called these fifty people. Out of those fifty, who called you back? How did those calls go? And were these actually of the twenty people that called you back? Were they really the ones you were hoping would call back? Were they the ones that led to sales? Were they time wasters? Were they ultimately targeted? There is again so many stars that need that need to align that can be aligned in so many different ways. Right. If if and with making those calls as the beginning, it shouldn't be the end result, right? Your lifetime long-term goal shouldn't be to 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 settle into a hundred to two hundred calls a day as your normal rhythm. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. Because that's a that's a great way to tire people out. Have you seen the uh, Have you seen the retention rates in the telemarketing industry? Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't work. Yeah, and, and the telemarketing industry, because I, I did that for I did that for three days too, like everybody else has at one point or another. <laughs> and it was simply based on how much time or you know, how many calls can you make? 
And then, yeah, there were those rules. The person had to say no three times and things like that. Uh, I mean, you could go on and on and on with, uh, you know, the different metrics they use and, and what you had to do to make the sale. Uh, I can tell you that when I did telemarketing, I got through the training plus one actual phone day. That was enough for me. I think I sold, I think I sold a magazine or something now. I wonder if they're still subscribing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's interesting about this conversation is we ended up looking a little bit more at the factors, whether it's from management, from mindset, from environment to measuring of metrics that impact our ability to sell with authentic persuasion. So we didn't get into a whole lot of languagey type techniques and things like that, which is fine because what we did today is we surprised our listeners very pleasantly by peeling back a layer of the onion and going beyond word for word scripts and looking at what is stopping you from being able to use that language. And if you can master some of what Jason Cutter gave you here today, then you're going to be well on your way to being much more effective as an authentic persuader. As we wrap up here, Justin, I want to give uh, folks a moment. Uh, they may be listening in, one to get more of your consultative and inspirational approach to how they manage sales in their organization. So what do you have for us and what do people have to look forward to with you? So one of the best things to do is I have all of my information, all my links at jasoncutter.com. And if you go there, there's all kinds of resources, setting a time with me where you can hop on a discovery call. I have the book that's available for sale. I have a free ebook. Um, definitely when you reach out to me, make sure you mention this show, especially on the discovery call. Uh, yep. And there's some extra bonus tips and value that I can give that, you know, I have for some of my coaching clients to, to help people, whether they're in business or just in sales themselves and they want to be more successful with their selling process. Yeah. Let me tell you, let me tell listeners about this book very quickly because I'm looking forward to it as well. It's the same title as the episode selling with authentic persuasion. And the subtitle is transforming from order taker it's a quota breaker, which I mentioned very early in the episode. So what it's about is actually removing the stress and anxiety you feel about selling. If you've listened to this entire episode, you notice that there actually was some stress and anxiety. And there were stories being told, well, largely by me, of stress and anxiety that I have felt in selling roles and what caused some of that stress and anxiety. So what we're doing in this book is we're changing that focus to what's really important, which is your customers and their needs. And Jason gets into all sorts of things, uh, tactics. It's actually in the book description. But what I want to do is I want to give our listeners uh, a little nudge to go ahead and do this for themselves. And that is to go to jasoncutter.com, as Jason asked you to do, and scroll down to one of the buttons on the front page of his site, and you'll find the button for the book, Selling with Authentic Persuasion. Make sure you grab a copy of that. Make sure you're first in line for that, because that's going to make a big deal and a big difference in what you're doing for your success. That's awesome. Thank All right. You. So, Jason Cutter, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor and, believe me, an education. Adam, thank you for having me and for what you're doing for business owners and wanting to help them be more effective and this whole angle with the influence and persuasion and, and wanting to talk more about that. It's what the world needs is, is people to be more effective at that. So I appreciate you and uh, your show and what you're doing with everything. 
Absolutely. So for everybody listening, uh, I, again, we appreciate you tuning in. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.